one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Warren Gatland must be wondering why he bothered putting in all that preparation over the last 12 months, working on the blazer design with Gerald Davies as he was, of course. having those all-night conversations about what the Lions mean with Willie John McBride and attending speechwriting classes with Jim Telfer, because you can never perfect your craft too no, much, Murphy. No. You can never be too perfect, that's all I always say. After all that, it turns out that the winning and losing of these test matches depends solely on a player falling over because he's wearing moulded studs. Well, you could say that, but... Did you see Lee Halfpenny falling over? No, of course you, of course not, because he attended a two-week stud choice workshop with Gatland in Poland in March. Uh, so, you know, you put the effort in on. One element that they didn't master was how to deal with the referee, Ken. I see that Sam Warburton's teacher's pet approach didn't have the desired effect. Well, what I, I don't have a problem with Warburton, you know, sucking up to the referee and, and trying to present him with a polished apple on his desk and all that kind of thing. <laughs> That's a perfectly legitimate approach to the referee. But what I want to know is how can an organization like the Lions, which has, frankly, quite a lot of backroom staff, and I'm not sure what they're all doing, there's only a dozen top-class rugby referees in the world. It's like being a rocket scientist. It's difficult to, to attain that level. You could see O'Driscoll puzzling with the rules. James Watton was writing the other day, the old war dog, O'Driscoll. Uh, even this old war dog. And you can picture a sort of grizzled, grey-looking you know, okay, hound with whoa, only whoa, one right. eye. That's Brian Driscoll. It's an old war right. dog we're talking about here. It's a, it's a, yeah, you know, right. half his teeth are gone, but the ones that are left are still shaking. No, it's a, it's that's the image he's going for. But if there's one thing this war dog knows, it's the rules. He's he's been in these situations, stuff, but there was confusion. Did he, did he know the rules? Apparently not. He was he had to argue with the referee. I'm just wondering though, Owen, given that the Lions have this massive capacity for research and preparation, why they don't have 50 page dossiers on every single one of these referees. You know, likes, dislikes, uh, what the relationship was like with their parents, so that they can work out exactly what approach the players should be taking, and then all fifteen or twenty-two players or however many stick to that at all times. Because not all teachers like the student who leaves the apple on the desk at the start of the day. No. Some find that a little creepy. Get See, away from me. Yeah, and some of them, some of them love that sort of obsequious uh, thing from the children. Some of them like rascally, twinkly-eyed. Mm. 
children, you know, who'll, who sort of think it's all a bit Tom of a laugh. Types. And others will come down like a ton of bricks on those children. The Lions have continued their winning ways today and we're going to be talking to Trevor Hogan and Shane Horgan in a little while. Benny Coulter later on, Murph, one of my favourite footballers, as you know. Yep. Down Ford, who has spoken quite vociferously in the past and passionately about how he dislikes... Hates football, yeah. The he sport. really dislikes everything He liked it when he was a kid. It's really defensive now. doesn't like it anymore. Yeah. But they did employ quite a defensive approach themselves yeah. on Sunday. I think Benny's approach to all is play until minor... Under 21 if you absolutely have to and then just forget about it because the game is kind of screwed. Uh, but he did, yes, down, um, went in against Donegal, quite defensive. I mean, you know, just basically common sense, effectively, uh, tactics. And they very nearly got over the line. I mean, if they'd taken a couple of their goal chances uh, and maybe if Benny had been at the end of a couple of those goal chances, then they might very well have pulled off a, a bit of a shock. We're interested in Cork's victory over Clare in the hurling, largely because it seemed to us that Jimmy Barry Murphy was starting to come under quite a bit of pressure. I'm sure our Cork listeners will be well clued into anything that's going on there. But it seems the question that arises from that is, why would you even go back and manage mm. a county again when you've achieved all you can in the game, as Jimmy Barry Murphy has done? We'll ask Nicky English, who went to manage the team that he'd achieved success with in his playing days, of course, and had an iconic status with in the county. And Malachy Clerk is going to be in studio for that one. We're going to be talking to Matt Macklin over in Connecticut, Murph. Mm. He's preparing for his fight on Saturday night. He's going for a world title for a third time against a pretty dangerous opponent. Yeah, absolutely huge fight for uh, for Matt Macklin. And, you know, he hasn't got over the line. And, you know, maybe if he had focused on the one key part of being a boxer, then maybe he could he could already be world champion. This is just my advice to him. Strong you defense, know. Floyd Mayweather style. Well, listen, you can go technical on this. Yeah. Or I would, I would say that he is yet to pick the one nickname that truly <laughs> defines him. And I think that that's really the key, the key issue it's here. It's Mac the Knife, no? Well, you, there is that. But there's also the Roscommon Rock, or the Shamrock Slugger, or the Tipperary Tornado. Yeah. Actually, I read that. The first time I read that, I literally did think it said the Tipperary Tomato, which would have been really a terrible nickname. You know when he's introduced over in the US? It's yeah, as the Tipperary Tomato. Tomato. It, he's hail, hailing from Birmingham, Tomato. England and fighting for the pride of uh, the fighting Irish all over the world. And I just think that confuses the American fight fans mm. even more, probably, about whether well, Ireland is actually part of England or not. But well, Birmingham is part of England. Yeah. I mean, Birmingham is part of America, if you're from, from Alabama. From an American perspective. Yeah. Pretty big 24 hours, Ken, in the world of football, particularly with regards to managerial appointments. Yeah, huge clubs appointing managers all over the place. So Carlo Ancelotti's confirmed as new manager of Real Madrid. We'd kind of seen that coming a while back. Uh, PSG have hired Laurent Blanc. Pep Guardiola was appointed yesterday as Bayern Munich manager in an extended press conference in which he had to sort of tool around with the Bayern Munich mascot, <laughs> a large red furry creature, and Guardiola playing football with each other. And speaking German, uh, not bothering with a translator, uh, talking in German, did well. Talking in German, leaving sort of oral German. Obviously, Guardiola spoke English before, and, you know, decent, passable English. And you could see then when he, it was a little bit like Giovanni Trapattoni, reminded me a bit of him in terms of he's, he's getting to grips with this new language and the other foreign language that he speaks keeps sort of inserting itself. Uh, English words are coming out when he's trying to say, you know, mine opinion is... Sorry, what was that? Sorry, you just completely lost me there. <laughs> what were you trying to say? It, it does seem, uh, you know, German maybe doesn't seem that impenetrable a language in some aspects to an English speaker, but to a Spanish speaker, I think the gap is a little bit I mean, if English is kind of a combination between Germanic and 
and Romance languages, Spanish is way over to one side. So it's more difficult for someone like him. I actually didn't think, I think he needs to get a lot better. I'm sure he will now that he's living there. But I thought it was interesting that there seemed to be a kind of eagerness to, wow, praise. It's partly because I don't think Germans are used to any foreigners bothering to learn their language. But, you know, I think Guardiola does need to work on it a, a bit. I think he's roughly where Trapattoni is now. Maybe he'll, he's going to study at it a bit harder. Richie Sadler is going to be in in just a second to talk a bit about his own transition from playing professional football to becoming a pundit, moving into the media side of things and the sort of challenges that you face there. Maybe in particular having to criticise former players or guys that you have relationships with. It's something I'm quite interested in and something you touched on with Michael Owen yesterday, Ken. Yeah, and Michael Owen is going to be working for BT. He's going to be basically doing for them what Gary Neville's been doing for Sky. He was in Dublin because of the publicised fact that these games, the BT games, are going to be shown on Satanta. Uh, and I thought it might be interesting to ask him a bit about, at the end of his career, maybe to reflect a bit on the beginning of it because it sort of defined a lot of what came after. And then the fact that he's doing, I guess, what, what Richie has, has done, what a lot of players have done before. I mean, this move from playing professional football uh, into the media is maybe something that, uh, well, it puts him in the position of having to learn something new, which maybe he hasn't faced up to in a while. It's a kind of emotional moment for me, Michael, seeing you retire, because you're the first player younger than me I ever saw score a goal in the Premier League against Wimbledon that time. Yeah, back in the day, yeah, it's um, that's where it all started, Wimbledon. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a fantastic time, fantastic moment in my life. And, um, you know, I had some great years at, at Liverpool and obviously went on to, to, uh, to represent a, a few clubs and, and internationally as well. It was, uh, But that's where it all started, so it was probably as emotional for you as it was for, for me and my parents. So I've had a great career like this to be kind of to be over, so it seems so soon. I mean, it didn't seem to me like a long time ago. I mean, how quickly has this 15 years seemed to pass? 16 years seemed to pass to you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you're in it, you you know, you're fully engrossed in it, you, you don't think much about it but as soon as you, you decide to retire then all them sort of emotions come flooding out and um, looking back I suppose it has been um, quick I mean 16 years seems a long time but it only seems like yesterday as they say and especially making my debut there so no it's been um, it's been everything and more that I could have obviously wished for it's been a, it's been a fantastic journey but unfortunately you've got to back in at some stage and, and um, I just felt it was it was the right time. When did you first realise this is going to end one day? I mean, the, I remember your bad injury at Leeds, what was it, 99 maybe? Yeah. And it took a long time to recover from that. Was that maybe the first moment you went, you know, this is actually a fragile uh, thing, this career? Um, I don't, I think I always, I was young enough to, to know that I had, you know, plenty left in me after that. Leeds injury I was only 19 at the time and obviously went on to to fulfill or to achieve um, most of my you know um, achievements in the in the coming years so no I think I think once you start hitting your late 20s you start thinking you know you start counting the years more so and if you do get an injury there you're thinking well if I'm out for five months or something then you know you're almost thinking that's that's 10 20 25 percent of my career now that I'm going to be on the sideline for for the remainder of my career so I think the later you get I never had any real career threatening injuries especially in, in this day and age when you can repair certain things so um, but no I mean you just I think if you think about things and if you start thinking wow what have I just achieved and, and start worrying or, or celebrating or whatever when you when you're young then that's the time when you you, you fall flat on your face really 
all the people that have been successful are, are hungry for the next one and you, you forget about what you've just done and yes at the end of your career you can look back and give yourself a pat on the back but when you're in it you, you're not thinking what you've just just done you're thinking about what you what you're going to do next do you feel angry about anything that happened uh, in the early years of your career in terms of i'm sure when you were 17 18 19 you just wanted to play all the time but maybe it wasn't the best thing for you at the time when you look back do you wish that maybe certain things had been different well it's easy looking back and thinking what would have happened if you know if certain things had to happen but at the time you know, it was how I wanted it. It was how the team needed it in many ways. I mean, Sometimes, though, you got to say to an eighteen-year-old, "No." I mean, maybe a, maybe a better way to look at it is when you see eighteen-year-olds now playing in the Premier League. There's not too many of them. Do you kind of think to yourself, maybe uh, you know, Raheem Sterling didn't play much the second half of the season. Maybe it's not actually the worst thing for him at this time of his career. No, that's potentially a. Um, a fair point and you know we're, we're often looking at how to, to develop our, our young players but you know you've got to put things in perspective as well I mean I was <laughs> without sounding brash or anything I was you know at the top of my game early on in my career and, and Liverpool weren't you know challenging for the title really we were sort of coming third, fourth, fifth, sixth um, and here was your young lad that was, was on the scene and, and scoring goals aplenty and um, you know, as I say, at the top of my, my game at the time, so it's very tempting for a manager then to, to obviously put the best team out or put his best players out. And, and who who am I at 18? You know, I thought it was the best thing in the world to be playing in every game possible, and it was uh, it was what I wanted to do. So I could never never look back and think what if or I shouldn't have done this. I mean, you know, put it this way: if you were at Man United at the time winning the league and you had so many top players, then it would have been far easier for the manager to. Mm. to you know, blood you through a little bit slower, I suppose. But you know, I wouldn't have wanted that. I was, you know, I was eager to play in every game, and, and that's um, that's just how it was. So you know, no uh, no complaints there. With the experience that you've had across, you know, the big clubs, you've you've, you've, you've played at the World Cup, you've played in Europe, you've even been relegated. I think uh, with Newcastle, were you still there when they when they went down? Yeah. Um, the fact that you now. Uh, intending to work for media I mean you're here for, for BT obviously do you think maybe I, I know some former pros some English pros say that it's a pity that this kind of experience is lost to the game um, is coaching not something that you've considered at any point well I think there's lots of different ways you can put things back into the game um, and obviously working for BT is going to take um, a certain amount of my, my time and I'm really excited to, to be um, doing the majority of the co-commentary on the on the channel um, I'd say putting, putting time effort back into the game is going to come on in other variations as well I'm, I'm set up a, a management company that's going to look after young players to, to hopefully you know we, we touched on maybe some of the mistakes I made throughout my career with, um, you know to to, uh, to guide young players through their, their career as well so you know something like that I see as, as you know putting putting um, things back into the game so in terms of coaching management um, it's one of them things that that you know I think if you do it once then you, you're hooked for life then I mean it's the, the adrenaline rush the, the buzz of managing a team and I have done my first uh, two sort of um, levels of coaching badges and you know I'd never say never but it's certainly something that I'm, I'm not looking to, to do at the minute I'm looking to obviously do my uh, 
BT Sport work and, and uh, so, as I say, set up my own management company. So broadcasting is a, is a craft that you now have to start learning. I mean, you've been pretty expert at what you've been doing ever since you were a kid. You've been playing football, so this is maybe the first time you've had to learn something new. I'm wondering, uh, is there anyone who you particularly admire or respect in terms of, uh, I don't know, commentators of the past, people who you think have done good work that you maybe think you could emulate? Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, certainly something that... that isn't natural to me in many ways. Um, I've, I've had experience of, of doing media work throughout my career, but, but nothing like this. And, and obviously, with it being a co-commentary side of things, it's more, you know, talking or more expertise, you know, dipping in and out of the game, and whatever. Whereas, you know, your, your, your lead commentator will be talking the, the uh, viewers through the whole game. So, you know, but I think someone like Gary Neville has, has come onto the scene in the last couple of years and really give everyone a great insight into to, uh, what players are thinking, what players are doing, how they're doing it, the tactics and everything else. So I think he's a, a great role model for any sort of player that's coming out of the game to, to look on and, and um, I'll be doing a similar role to him in terms of the co-commentary. So, yeah. Will he be competitive with Jamie Carragher? I think he's doing the same thing for Sky. Yeah, well, if you can understand Carragher, then I'm sure he'll be, uh, he'll be brilliant. Um, I'm big mates with Carragher. He's got a very strong uh, Scouse accent, so... I'm sure uh, a couple of people won't be able to understand him, but if you can understand him, I'm sure it'll be a, a fantastic addition because he's uh, he knows his stuff and, and um, yeah, he's a he's a good lad. Good stuff there with Michael Owen, Kenny. It, it, it's funny you can see some from time to time he carries himself impeccably. Really, he's not the kind of guy who's going to land himself in too many controversies. But we'll see. Uh, the more he does co-commentary, maybe the more controversial he might become. But the odd time the football dressing room banter comes out a little bit as it did there with Jamie Carragher oh, if you're able to understand him he might be good and then he immediately sort of rolls back and explains that Jamie Carragher has a Scouse accent but he, he'll be great you know he'll be really really yeah. good well will, will Michael Owen have to do some voice training himself you know will he have to will he be told to put in a little bit of up down fast slow in his delivery you know because well, I, I, I heard on it they're going to send him to this punishing pundit boot camp and uh, train him right up there he can't just it's it's you know it's almost as though you can't just get someone who's never played football before and send them out there in the in the Premier League and expect them to score a hat trick, you know. Michael Owen is is now uh, one of the best paid people, full stop, in the United Kingdom for being a football pundit. Maybe there's some skills that he's got to learn. Richie, what are the skills he's got to learn? Richie Sadler, I should welcome you first of all. Thanks, Owen. How are you, lads? Dropping into the conversation like that. What skills does Michael Owen have to learn now as a media personality? Well, the one of the difficulties going to face, which is one of the hardest things I found when I first started the job, is this notion that you're commenting, you're assessing the performance of people you know, your mates, um, which is easy to do when they're doing really well. It's great to be able to praise your mates publicly, but when they're not, um, I found that tricky. Well, I, I, the, the, one of the first gigs I had, I was a co-commentator with, I think, BBC London, and it was a Millwall-Watford game, and Kevin Muscat, um, who was at Millwall at the time, stood on one of the Watford lads' off the ball, got sent off, but Sky Sports were showing the game and the cameras caught it. So I had to talk about it and there was no way I could really in any way try and explain away what he did or, you know, God, in the heat of the moment or, you know, we've all done daft things. There was no place for that. So I kind of hammered him and then I met him a few days later and he said, listen, Muzzy, you know, you were caught in cam and there was nothing I could say and I said it to him and he was fine about it. But um, there was trickier times as well. I remember when Ireland played San Marino um, and it was the late Stephen Ireland goal, I think, that, that, that won us the game. I remember I wrote about that that weekend, and I remember I found that that was the toughest. That was the first time I remember thinking, 
right, I'm going to have to be really honest here. There's no way you can try and jazz up or, or uh, why a San Marino away fixture would be really tricky and why you know, a 94-minute winner you know, is, is, is as much as we could expect from these players. So um, it's really, really hard to criticise people that you personally know. Yeah. In the case of that San Marino one, what, uh, what the, do you remember what you had to say about it? I remember the, the game very well. Uh, I remember Robbie Keane coming out after it saying, a win's a win. And you kind of were saying, well, actually some wins are a little bit different from other wins, you know. Yeah, I remember it, w- it was Steve Staunton's comments in particular. Um, that I, we're going to be strong in March. We're, all, we're usually strong in March. And we, in the final anal- analysis, final stages of the group, we're going we're gonna to be a bit better. It, it, yeah, it, wa- it wasn't so much that, though, though, though that too. But it, it, it was the things like the comments he just attributed to Robbie. He, he was, Stan came out and said things like, well, no, we won the game. You cannot do more in a football match than win it, and we've won it. What are you on about? And I remember all these journalists and and and, and RTE or whoever was showing the game were asking. I go, surely that's not good enough. Surely this is a disastrous night. This is a little bit embarrassing for everyone. And he just no, we won the game. What are you on about? So I kind of wrote then what I thought on the back of that at the weekend, which is hard to do at the time. But I remember thinking, oh, this is my job. Like this is. In a scenario like this, anything else other than being honest and being in, honest in this example meant being critical. So you you wrote the article. It was one of many critical articles about Steve Stunden published that week. Oh, I got my comeuppance. I got my comeuppance eventually. Go on. We played. I, I was invited to play in a testimonial in Daily Mount, and it was a Bohemian select against, I don't know what they call the rest of us, but it was, it was a kind of mixed bag of players. And Stan was one of the players on, on, on my team. And we played the match, and I went off with my family for the day. He went off with some of the lads today, and ended up we all ended up in Copperface Jacks that night. Um, stories don't generally end well to begin with. <laughs> we ended up in Copperface Jacks. And he just approached me. I was standing at the bar with my cousin, actually, and he just comes up to me and goes right up to my face and just eyeballed me and just went, you know, you're on the other side of the fence now, aren't you? And I, I, I just looked back at him and just went... I didn't know what to say. Mm. Um, and he just said something like, you couldn't even look me in the eye. Oh. Because I hadn't spoken to him that day. And he he took that as I was avoiding him. Was and there any element of truth to that? Well, I hadn't spoken. I had been out the previous night, so I was very sheepish. Oh, yeah. So I, I didn't really go around. I was just, just get through this match. I probably thought I'd only play 15 minutes anyway because my hip is generally so bad. So he said that, and I said, well, at this stage we're eyeballed. And I said, well, I'm looking in the eye now, like, what's your point? And so things started getting a little bit heated. Um, and then Gary McAllister actually came over, Neil Lennon was there, they, they, and, and they just kind of came over and, and kind of calmed things down. But that's the, that's the, I was going to say that's the risk. You run, it, it's not generally speaking, you don't sit there and, 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 and soften your comments because you risk meeting people in cover face jacks. But when, when I find that when you're criticising people's performance, particularly in football, because there's a very small amount of people involved, really, when you think about it, the amount of people who play or manage or work in the media. So you generally bump into people, whether it's dinners or testimonials or, or, or press events. So um, back to the original question about Michael Long, that's something he's going to have to work out for himself, whether he wants your, to be yeah. honest or safe. I take it that was your last interaction with Steve Sonson? Did you ever bump into him again? No, I think that was it. Um, Happy enough to leave it at that point. I guess. Yeah. yeah, well, I'd say it probably made it easier if... You know, on subsequent nights to write critical things about Steve Staunton, 
you know, maybe if he'd come up and... That bridge is well and truly burnt at this point. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you could Might as well probably... throw more petrol in the general vicinity of where that bridge used to be. Yeah, but it's easy. I find it easier to just... And I only kind of learned this in, in time. It's easier just to say what you think. It's so hard to watch a match. I remember the first bit of punditry I ever did was with Satanta TV back in the day. And they used to do live Premier League matches. It was around 2004. And Duff was playing for Chelsea. And we just we had a run of games. We did a lot of Chelsea matches. And I remember sitting there before the game hoping he played really well. Because I'd known him for years. We played on the underage team. And, I got, and he's a gent. I don't want to sit here slagging him. And if and if he did play poorly, I'd, I'd kind of waffle away going, I know the supply to him isn't great, and by God, he's working harder. You know, this, what a great fella. And you kind of try and, you're kind of waffling then. And it's just easier being a pundit when you just look at something, decide what you think, and just say what you think, yeah. rather than trying to be a politician and keep people happy. Because it's just, it's just harder to do that. I think so. uh, Gary Neville is one who seems to have managed to, Quite well. I suppose he hasn't gone out. Well, he did actually slag off Phil Neville for diving in a match. Oh, that's come on, that's your brother. That's, it's, easy. That's easy. it's the easiest thing Is in the it? world. He's been doing that since he was born. Yeah. But in, just something in, else. In ways, it's actually a lot easier, and it kind of shows your shows your chops without actually having to slag anyone off. Just going to hold. <laughs> just keep picking him. Phil hold it against you. Yeah. Now that Phil's retired, Gary Neville will yeah. have Phillip. no. He calls him Philip. Philip, I, I should say. Then another point that Michael Owen was that Ken raised with Owen there was. This idea, I just wanted to pick up on it with you, Richie, of playing so much football so young. Owen didn't exactly say that's why he got injured, but clearly there's a subtext there. And he's talked about this in other interviews that the one regret he has in football is that he lost his pace really early on from about 19 years of age. He wasn't as fast and he does sometimes wonder, would he have broken Bobby Charlton's? In fact, he certainly would have broken Bobby Charlton's goal-scoring record in England and maybe even achieved a little bit more there. But as he says to Ken, look, I wanted to play all the matches they needed me to play because I was very good and I was scoring goals. Is that just the way it is in football? Is there who possibly within a football club should be the person saying, "Hang on, this guy is too young to play every single match in a robust league like this"? Well, if a player isn't showing any signs of an injury, and if a player is, is injury free and physically fit and playing to the standard that Michael Owen is playing, it doesn't really matter what age you are. It takes a big, brave manager, particularly a manager of a team that weren't exactly. They weren't winning trophies at the yeah, time. A team with huge expectations, but who haven't delivered. Like exactly. Liverpool. So, you know, the manager of that team, whoever he was, you know, and, and all the Liverpool managers since, they have to deal with this big expectations, but never delivering. And if you have your best player sitting on the bench every week and he's injury-free, that's one pretty sure way of getting yourself sacked. So, I, 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 and I don't think you can leave it up to the player because a 17-year-old is not in any way going to have the head of a 34-year-old as Michael Owen is now. And he can reflect back and say, you know what, maybe long term here, the best thing for me to do is maybe can we maybe have a program here where I play some games and not others or maybe half hour. No 17 year old that I've ever met has ever thought that I'm not way. even sure even now, looking back at it, Ken, that he thinks that way. Do you yeah. think if you put Michael Owen with the knowledge he has now back into his 17 year old self, would he ask to be dropped for a few games? Well, I think he would actually, yeah. Do you? Yeah, I mean, because I've, I've seen him talk about this before and the fact is that he, that injury that, we mentioned there was well, he he was 19 against Leeds and that it happened he was running just the full speed into the Leeds half with nobody near him it, it was like he was a puppet that someone had sort of jer- jerked upwards you know he almost sort of flew into the air and sort of fell to the ground limbs flailing and then was stretched off with the Leeds fans all uh, all cheered uh, and they didn't realize at the time but this was the end of the kind of phase one Michael Owen 
Uh, and he came back, but he's never quite, he was still, you know, a bit of a sort of speedster, but kept getting that hamstring injury. And so what he eventually did after the 2002 World Cup, when, when he again, he arrived at the tournament not really quite fit, you know, scored, I think, three goals, didn't quite, didn't get to, maybe it was two goals, didn't quite hit full um, his, his best form. He decided after that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of getting these hamstring injuries. I'm going to do something corrective about it and started doing weights and reappeared as this sort of chunk. You know, he was this little muscle man uh, waddling around <laughs> and was suddenly not getting hamstring injuries, but was not uh, not capable of, of moving or anything. Like, like, he wouldn't beat a man anymore. You know, he'd get the ball at his feet and he'd try to lay it off because he, he used to be able to just knock the ball past the player. He's proud of that, he has said since his retirement, that he was able to reinvent himself. Well, he, he had no choice. You know, but I mean, some of it, it, it had to do with the, his the physical changes. But what happened was that, uh, you know, the hamstring injury started to clear up and he just started getting all other kinds of injuries. You know, there was a, he had a bad ankle injury at one point before he left Liverpool. He actually was quite fit at Real Madrid because they barely, you know, they, they didn't start him in that many games. So when he came back, Newcastle, he broke his foot, uh, shouldn't really have gone to the World Cup, went to the World Cup anyway, ripped his knee to pieces, you know, and once that had happened, then it was just really there was, I, I think definitely if he was to look back, you know, in sort of the coolness of hindsight. And and again, maybe there's an element of that not really wanting to criticise people at the time, you know, the managers who played him at the time, he would have been maybe grateful for it. And he doesn't want to look back and say, well, actually, you know, even though he was really champing at the bit to play, then to criticise the people who let him do what he wanted to do. Maybe there was an element of that. But I think he would definitely say, look, if if there was some way that this could be better managed, that I wouldn't end up a physical wreck, a burnout by the time I was... 21, so I had to remodel my entire physique, my entire playing style, then probably that would have been good. It's very, very difficult to be to, to take a sensible view of things when you're in the middle of it. Um, I, I remember when I knew I had a career-threatening injury, I knew for 18 months after the surgery that I had it. And But still, the, this, the slightest chance of playing on a Saturday, even when I had a load of symptoms that the injury wasn't right and it was in a fair amount of discomfort and pain, I still put my forward, myself forward to play. And it's just a really hard thing to do to, because there's such a difference between playing and, and, and being injured. You're completely out of things. And it's just demoralising. The more and more knockbacks you have, you're sitting in the physio room, you're not involved in any of the highs and lows of what goes on on a weekend. It's just the same thing every day. And it's, 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 it's just a really difficult thing to go through. So when you get a little chance of playing, it's very hard and you're asking a lot of a player, particularly a younger player, to turn around and be and have the mindset of, a, of an experienced professional with his own long-term well-being in mind. Play, young players, they just don't think that way. Yeah, Neymar's playing a lot of football at the moment. A lot of good football as well, Ken. Playing a lot of amazing football. You've been impressed by him? Well, how could you not be impressed by him? He's, he's been absolutely brilliant. I mean, he scored a brilliant goal in each game in the Confederations Cup so far, and he's done a lot of other things. He's committed a lot of fouls. He's by far the player with the most fouls in the tournament. Really? <laughs> he's got... He's got one yellow card for 13 fouls, a friend of mine was mentioning the other day. He said, uh, what is, you know, it's almost as though FIFA don't want Neymar to get suspended in this tournament. He's just going around <laughs> kicking people uh, up in the air. But he's scoring a lot of amazing goals. I just wonder with this guy, uh, who is clearly a star, I mean, a massive star, the best Brazilian player since Ronaldinho anyway, um, whether he is also going to burn out in a slightly different way. I mean, I, he clearly doesn't have... 
I suppose the thing we were talking about with young players is that they think that their capacity is limitless. They don't feel as though there are limits on their own uh, ability, their physical powers, their, you know, you know, what they can do. Neymar is in more ads, has been in more ads already than almost all the rest of the players in the Brazil team put together. It seems to me as though every second of his life he is on television. He's either on TV or he's, or he's doing an ad or he's, you know, he's actually playing in a game some of the time. And I just kind of wonder about this weird world that he lives in. He seems quite at home at, at the moment, but I just wonder if maybe this, the, the demands on him are a little bit too, too much. You know, I mean, a guy like him surely should, needs to concentrate on... He's, he's not anywhere near what, he, what his peak could be as a player yet. But just based on his on-field persona, he does... There are comparisons with Cristiano Ronaldo in the way that he carries himself with such, with such incredible confidence. I think he's a lot more relaxed than Ronaldo. Well, he seems to be a lot more chill out. Ronaldo always had this sort of intensity about him. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I don't know... I don't know why why that necessarily it's is. It's something in the confidence in what he's doing. It looks like he knows what he's all about. It doesn't look a man who doesn't really feel pressure. That's certainly what I would think of when I think of Cristiano Ronaldo. It doesn't bring me to Real Madrid. I'll still score a goal every game. Yeah, Neymar seems to have that same same kind of. I don't think the same way Ronaldo did. No. I mean, no. I think when Ronaldo went to Madrid, it was like he, you know, I'm I'm this is what I was born to do. You know, I want to go and I remember his presentation in Madrid. There's you know eighty ninety thousand people there just to see him walk out on a red carpet and juggle the ball around. And he loved it. <laughs> to him, he wasn't embarrassed by it in the slightest. It seemed quite a normal setup for him. Um, but with Neymar, you know, he's, he's doing all these kind of... And the thing is that he's actually been encouraged to do that by his club, or his, his now former club, because he's joining Barcelona. But his, Santos had decided, we don't want to sell Neymar to Europe. But the fact is, we can't really pay him that much money. So they actively pushed him into doing this. You know, they said, listen, Neymar, we can only pay you, you know, a couple of million dollars, but you can make an unbelievable amount of money from doing commercials for pretty much every company in Brazil. Uh, and it's quite easy to do. And you kind of like that anyway, you know, you know, you just go around with a phone or, you know, <clears throat> they get you to dress up in, in outfits or do bicycle kicks, you know, all this kind of, it's simple stuff for you, Neymar. It's, it's actually, you'll enjoy this. You'll become a star. And, by doing that, they, you know, he, he's been making a lot of money. Yeah, and you don't even have to smoke cigarettes as Gerson did. <laughs> no. You, you note in your Irish Times got him this week back in the 70s. Yeah, although already he's, he's had a couple of little problems with the ads that he was in. I mean, he does, there's, there's a brand of underwear, Lupo, I think, just recently. He, he, you know, the ad is basically Neymar comes out. Or the women come into this shop and they want to buy underwear. So suddenly Neymar walks out wearing just wearing his underwear and sort of is modeling it and they're all giggling and sort of simpering and they, and they buy the underwear. And then this big brawny man comes in. He wants to buy the underwear. But where's Neymar? Oh, he's scuttling around the, the back of the shop. He's not interested in modeling for this guy. So immediately you had all, all these uh, sort of uh, groups protesting about Neymar's homophobic ad, you know, which Neymar, I'm sure, walked into that studio, put on three different pairs of underwear and did what he was told to do, right? He's, he hasn't really given it much thought. But here he is already, his little stains on his on his reputation are, are appearing. And that's what the fact is. If you sell yourself to, to corporations, you end up representing what they want you to represent rather than what you really are. Do the majority of football fans care about that, though, that he, he's in some ads that, you know, the odd group mightn't be too happy with their fans just worried about banging in these free kicks and goals. I think the Brazilian fans won't care about the ad, probably. I mean, they, they, one of the things that was clear when we kind of did the, the preparation to, to, to cover in this tournament with RTE, the pressure on them, whatever about the off-the-field stuff, 
within that squad, every time Brazil are mentioned or their hopes for the World Cup next year, all seem to focus on this fella achieving his full potential. Mm. Because, And the more you see a Brazil play, the more you understand why that's the case. I mean, he's not surrounded by a wonderful supporting cast in that squad. So I, I don't know how... Uh, I don't know how that could be good for someone long term. No. As a 21 year old, I mean, he, he to, to have that life and have those pressures, and there's a whole industry created around him at the centre of it, and, and how, how that can aid your, it's a, your, your it's development. A it's a cumulative thing as well. I mean, you know, the, we were talking there about the, the effect on his reputation of doing that after that, after that, and that's something which build, will, over time, will build up, and I think will be a problem for him. But there's also the, the fact that he is the star. And the you know the entire media is saying the same thing, and he's kind of contributing to that every single time. I, I mean, we I mentioned this in the Irish Times coming his goal celebration after the Italy game. He scored the goal. The team mates run to congratulate him, and then after they've kind of cleared off, he does an extra celebration. But he's done that for each of his goals. Each time he scored a goal, he's done something. After everyone has gone back, is, is already going back to their positions. There's Neymar doing his own thing, which is almost like. I've got to do this bit because this is kind of the the bit that will be on, not that will be on YouTube, but that can be used in that. It's the footage of me. There's nobody else in the picture here. You know, this is, mm. this, and it's kind of. He's actually photoshopping his own teammates out. He's almost. For the purposes well, of the media. He's, he, yeah, he's what, so, that, so that that doesn't have to happen. Mm. So they've got a clean, yeah, clean yeah. image to, to Photoshop. Funny though, right? You know, uh, in a broadly similar situation, Sachin Tendulkar, you know, at the height of David Beckham's uh, fame with Real Madrid and everything else, he was still second to Sachin Tendulkar in uh, uh, ad in money being received from from companies. Sachin Tendulkar, of course, the greatest Indian cricketer of all time, who's still playing, and Tendulkar is still doing it. He's still in this like eye-watering amount of ads. Drive down uh, any street in India, you will see Sachin Tendulkar on a billboard. Now, he's a different type of person to Neymar, but it's still 15, 16, 17 years of constantly shilling himself, constantly selling this image. And he's managed to do it in a, in a country that's as daft about cricket as Brazil is about football. Yeah. So it's, it's doable. But You can do it. I mean, Pelé's been doing it. But the problem is Pelé is, is, is regarded as a joke now. People think, oh, who's Pelé? You know, what's he selling? Uh, and it's, you know, does he need that much money? The problem Pele's had over the years is that he keeps losing his money, he keeps investing in bad, uh, mm. you know, bad ideas, and he ends up having to go. I mean, that's why he played for the New York Cosmos. He lost all his money. He was like, what am I going to do? And he got, you know, offered two point eight million dollars to come out of retirement and play for the New York Cosmos. Okay, I'll do that. Um, but you know, it, it's, you know, it's it's it, there's a cost to that as well. I think the 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 one thing is worth noting here that there's a huge amount to be mon- of money to be made. If you're the management company of these players um, from their commercial deals, I remember when I any agent that approached me, they all had similar kind of commissions. Anything between two and five percent on your playing contract would be their fee, but it would be in the region of twenty or twenty-five percent on any commercial deals. Logic being that obviously the player is predominantly um, responsible for the playing contracts, but the commercial deals are gotten solely by the agent and their contacts. So you, you can understand then why someone like. Neymar would be kind of used in this way because the people around him are going to make life-changing amounts of money with every ad he does. So if Neymar isn't the kind of fella at the age of 21 who can stand up to all kind of middle-aged businessmen who are fairly cutthroat, which could be his management company, you can understand then why we're going to see plenty of them. Richard, just lastly, is the World Cup being staged in Brazil starting to look like a bad idea now given all the protests? It's, it's, it's an incredible story. 
It really is. Um, and, and the numbers involved seem to grow every day. I think, yes, when you look at what's going on in Brazil and the money spent on the tournament and generally what goes on in FIFA, it's difficult to put a case to say that the Brazilian uh, taxpayers' money is best spent on hosting a one-month football tournament next year. But um, we'll see how the protests continue. I know the president came out and said something last week. I don't know whether that's made much of a difference, but um, it's a story that's going to run and run, I'd say. All right, Richie, enjoy the rest of the tournament. Great stuff, thank you. Cheers, lads. Great stuff from Richie there, albeit highlighting the perils of actually speaking your mind sometimes as a pundit with that um, slight altercation he had with a former Republic of Ireland manager. Yeah, and and viewers obviously love to see people speaking their mind, especially if, if it's critical because it's kind of conflict and, you know, it's drama and it's entertainment. Um, but it can obviously be destructive as well. You got you know, if people are going to be serious about that, it, it can be destructive both to the person they're talking about and ultimately to their own uh, reputation in a way. I mean, it's no surprise to me that I mean, you could criticise often sports people for doing, for for speaking in such a bland way and for not really saying what they think. But you know, then you get an example of them actually saying what they think about something. Serena Williams has done a big interview at Rolling Stone, a guy called Stephen Roderick, who recently wrote a, a great piece on Lindsay Lohan's attempt to get her, her acting career back on track. You know, that was really good. I don't know if it was on the basis of that that he got this commission to do Serena Williams' piece. But anyway, he hung out with Serena Williams. She kind of knew what his modus operandi was. I mean, the Lindsay Lohan article describes the, <laughs> obviously a lot of things going wrong in, in sort of uh, in a pretty blunt way. Uh, with the Serena... Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting piece. It's a great piece. You can read it in Rolling Stone. And it's resulted in not just one, but two massive public relations disasters for Serena Williams. The more serious one of them involving uh, the case, this Steubenville uh, rape case, where Serena Williams seemed to um, said, said some things, you know, well, the girl was drunk and this kind of thing, which she's had to apologize for, you know, because it seems that she seemed to be placing some of the responsibility for what happened on the girl. The, the less serious one, uh, but, you know, also uh, some, some, somewhat troublesome for Serena was uh, a conversation that she has with Venus uh, over the phone in the article, uh, in which it becomes very obvious very quickly that she's talking about Maria Sharapova and her boyfriend. Well, you know, she's still not going to get invited to the cool parties, but if she wants to be with this guy with a black heart, then I guess that's fine. To which Maria Sharapova then shoots back a few days later. Well, you know, I, I don't know why Serena would want to talk about personal stuff. She's got so much great stuff in her life. But if she wants to talk about personal stuff, then why doesn't she talk about her husband, who was, or her boyfriend, rather, who was married but is now divorced and has kids? So you, at the end of all that, you'd kind of think, what really was in this interview for Serena Williams? Does she look back and think, I'm glad I did that piece with Rolling Stone? Or is she thinking, I'm never, ever again going to do a truthful interview again in the rest of my life. Another man not afraid of speaking the truth, Murph, Pat Spillane. Of course. Uh, and uh, this week he was uh, on about down in Donegal on, uh, on Sunday night. And uh, he'd been asked to just say whether Dan's tactics had been successful. So he pointed out a few things that he thought they'd done right and then pointed out a few things that maybe he thought they could improve on. And then the upshot of the whole thing was they lost, so the tactics didn't work, which is... You know, maybe a little on the, the simplistic side. Yeah. Successful tactics, Des, are tactics which have been adopted by teams who win. So, read my lips. Were Down's tactics successful? No. Why? They lost the game. And they lost the game, I think, that was there for the winning. Okay. Read my lips, he said. 
Uh, yes, indeed. So the, I think we're losing a little something there in the audio because for the entirety of that, Pat's plan is pointing at his <laughs> lips. So when he says, read my lips, his fingers are pointing at his lips uh, just to differentiate what part of his anatomy the words are coming out of. But he's saying, read my lips, pointing at his mouth. And then he kind of has, he he's kind of freezes his hands long past the time he said, read my lips. He, they're still kind of frozen, pointing, pointing at, at his own mouth to make sure that everyone knows that, yes, the master has spoken. Benny Coulter was in that downside, which narrowly missed out on toppling the All-Ireland champions. And he joins us now. I'm delighted to say, Benny, no shame in losing to a team as good as Donegal. And you've been getting some pats on the back from some quarters for how well the team performed. But I, don't, I get the sense that doesn't really mean much to you, judging by what players and the manager has been saying since the game. You genuinely believed you were going to win this. Yeah, 100%. Uh, we felt going into the game that we had everything spot on, tactics and uh, the game plan and the system right. And... Uh, we knew, obviously, we knew it would be tough, but we definitely thought we were going to win the game. And just unfortunate that we came up short at the end, but we, we missed a lot of chances. And I suppose if we had a taken taken something, we we could have won the game. Like, and it's just disappointing. But on the other hand, we we take a good bit of confidence that we can play a different system than the one we played against Derry. Yeah, I want to get onto the system in a moment, but just that idea of having that sort of belief. I mean, we've all played football at probably low, a lot lower levels than yourself, Benny, and we've suffered heavy, heavy beatings by teams, and the next time you play them, you all tell each other in the, te- in the dressing room, oh, we can win this game, but nobody really actually believes it. How did you garner the belief that you weren't as bad as you looked last season against Donegal? Uh, just, I think, the work we've put in from January, you know, uh, the boys have worked really, really hard, and Niall's come in, Niall Mine, he's done a lot of fitness work with us, and we knew in our hearts that we are not fitter, and uh, we knew we knew we hadn't a bad league campaign. You know, a lot of the games were tight, and we just knew we were in good shape. And the boys were in good form. McKernan and them boys were flying. You know, so uh, you know the boys had total belief that that we were going to win the game. As I say, just unfortunately, we we fell off short in the end. That system you talk about, is it as simplistic as to say that it was a, just a more defensive system, as a lot of people are saying, than last year? Uh, it was a wee bit to it, you know. Uh, we worked on it since the day game, and uh, it's pretty simple when you know what it is, but uh, I'm sure James wouldn't like me, me putting it out there what it is. But, you know, I think it's the way forward for us, uh, where we keep things tight at the back and, and hopefully get enough scores on the board up front. And, uh, you know, it's a good way to play it, and, and it means that we can play a couple of different ways, like. Uh, does that kind of go against sort of the traditional down style of football? That you know that uh, it's you you score uh, three goals, we score four. Kind of kind of an idea. It does, yeah, it does. But we, when you look at the boys that we've missed too, like the likes of Big Dan and Garvey and Marty and Mooney and them boys, you know, uh, suppose if we had those boys playing, we we would be able to we would be able to take on any team in Ireland. But it's just unfortunate that we've lost all those guys, and uh, we probably don't have. I'm as good a team as we would have had with them guys on it. So, you know, we have to adapt to this game. And if, if we didn't, I'm sure if we had a went man for man or whatever with Donny Gall, it would have given us another tanking, you know. Yeah, you gave very interview, interesting interviews a couple of years back, Benny, when you said that you, you were asked, would you pay in to watch a modern Gaelic football match? And you said, no, you didn't really, you weren't a fan of this new sort of more defensive style. Would you have paid in to watch down against Donny Gall on Sunday? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. I was actually out with the club last night, and by Tom O'Hara used to play for Down. He uh, he just he said to me it was brutal to watch, but he knows. And Tom is a real, you know, out all out attacking 
he wants every team to attack, but he says it was bad to watch, but he says I know he's had to do it. He says I understand that you have to play like that, but it's brutal to watch. But he's, you know, he did even say that he was happy the way we played. Like, but as I say, he, he said it was brutal to watch. Like, well, was it that brutal? I mean, you know, I, I think this, uh, that maybe people are just getting uh, immune to it now, nearly. But I mean, I, I think that there is. There is, there is um, respect to be garnered from a defensive effort like Dan put in on on Sunday. Oh, and there's no doubt about it. Like we we had a, we had to do that. Like, and I was reading on Twitter a lot of comments after the game about people saying, "Jesus, this game is bad," and turn it off, and a lot of fist passing. But you know, uh, you can't. Sometimes you can't win. Uh, if we go all out attack, we get hammered, and people say, "Jesus, why did they not go more defensive?" And, now we do go a bit more defensive and people are sort of criticising us but you know we're happy we really keep doing that and, and hopefully get the results like. Yeah I was on Twitter after the game myself Benny and I saw that you didn't seem to be too happy with Pat Spillane's analysis on Sunday evening what was your issue no, there? No I just I met up with Holy and Big Ambrose yesterday morning and we are just talking about it and uh, I just I just, I just, I just couldn't be bad listening to this man and just put it up and a couple of boys get back to him and ask Stevie and that, you know, Stevie McGowan. And, you know, he just goes over the top at times and just carried away with things. And You know, last week he probably would have said against, uh, again, Derry, that we were too, we went man for man and now he's saying, geez, too defensive and stuff. Like, so you can't win. Yeah, he, I think he's essentially, he was, well, he did it in a very theatrical fashion, but his point was that the tactics weren't, you couldn't consider those tactics successful because you lost. You don't think that's fair? No, definitely not because we lost because we didn't take our chances up and up in the forward line. We had the technical spot on, but we didn't just finish off the chances we had. And if we had finished off those chances, we we we, we would have won the game. Like, and uh, that's the bit that let us down, and probably that's the bit that he didn't. He should analyse the game and see that and say, listen, that there's tactics spot on they just weren't clinical enough up front Benny just lastly are you still enjoying it given that we know how you like football to be played but it seems that maybe you've got to a point now where you just have to accept that this is the way it is these days are you still enjoying your football at inter-county level definitely I enjoy the training and stuff for the lads Uh, you know working with James has been brilliant for me this past couple of years the games probably aren't enjoyable you know as they used to be you know you're not going to it's tough to get in the score sheet even, you know. Uh you know, you're not you're not gonna have sort of six on six at the back and stuff and sometimes you go into games thinking to yourself, well, you know, it's more for the team than about yourself and at this stage of my career I'm happy enough to do that with you know, us going a more defensive system, uh, if it's if it's better for the team I'm happy enough to do that. But it was definitely the games were definitely more enjoyable for me back in the early stages of my career uh, and suppose the trainings are a lot better now Alright, well listen Benny great to talk to you as always thanks so much for taking the call oh, today well. Thank you Lovely to hear from Betty Coulter who himself is not afraid of speaking the truth there Murph no. still will not pay any money in to see a Gaelic football if Benny Coulter is going to save a lot of money after his yeah. career ends just by not going to see live Gaelic football I was going to make the point you know that he is one of Dan's best players of the last 30 years so you know I don't think it's going to be a big issue he turns up you know, the guy on the gate's probably going to turn a blind eye. If it's a financial thing, you know, I don't think Benny has to worry about it. He'll be absolutely fine. He'll get into these games for free. I mean, it's really, 
you know, it's it's a time cost is what Benny is concerned about. I think more. No. If you have any pride in yourselves, don't let them beat you four effing times. So said Sean Ogle Halpin in the Sunny Independent after Cork lost three times to Clare this year already. They won well on Sunday anyway to quieten some of the murmurings about Jimmy Barry Murphy's management. Uh, there have been those memories, which leads you to ask why legends like JBM actually go back for more after already securing legendary status in their counties. Nicky English put his reputation on the line when he managed tips, so he has a bit of previous here. And we've got Malachy Clerk in, in studio. But just to tee it up a little bit, Murph, in that same interview in the Sunday Independent, Sean Ogle himself was questioning Jimmy Barry Murphy in particular with regards to how he's dealt with the changing of the guard. Yeah, he did. And uh, it was basically this is the it, it reaches to the core of a major challenge after a team has been successful is how do you get rid of that team and try and renew uh, the county's fortunes with a new set of players and obviously Sean Og is a little bit older and you can probably make your uh, you can you know pretty you can make an excuse for Sean Og you can make an excuse for Donald Og Cusack uh, but Sean Og was going on in the Sunday Independent quite a bit about John Gardner and it is it's hard to believe that John Gardner is uh, 30 years old, Malky, as you were saying to me earlier on, that he's 10 years younger than Tony Brown and uh, finds himself not playing in the, the Munster Hurling Championship this year, which seems you know pretty odd to me. You could say a manager's entitled to choose whoever he wants to choose, but you're on TV with John Gardner the other night, Malachy. Was he being drawn on any of this? Uh, yeah, he was, he was to an extent. I, I, I mean, if he wasn't, it wasn't for the want of uh, Marty Morrison's <laughs> trying. Um, but he was, yeah... It, they, I think they essentially had him on because uh, they were hoping that he'd have a bit of a go, and he didn't. He did, and he didn't. Like he, he sort of held his counsel much, much in the same way as Don Logue did on Sunday game on Sunday night. Um, but he basically he he had one line where he sort of said, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see the game on Sunday. It'll be a contrast in styles between uh, a tactically prepared team and a team playing off the cuff, off the cuff. The implication, if you wanted to read between the lines there, being that um, Jimmy Barry, the, the the manager that hadn't asked him back, was essentially sending his team out to just, you know, hurl away and, you know, remember that you're Cork and we'll win, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I think he the, the implication being that, you know, Clare would be more structured now and in the end, you know, Cork were seven points the better team, so... What does John Gardner know in a way? Nicky, I guess what we're talking about here is some fairly standard managerial challenges, the changing of the old guard. But I just think it leads nicely into even the hint that there can be criticism of somebody like Jimmy Barry Murphy, a guy who uh, Sean Ogle, all those older players would have had huge regard for when he was there first time around. He achieved all he did as a player. Can you empathise with why somebody like Jimmy Barry Murphy would want to put himself through all this stress again? Yeah, I was actually surprised when Jimmy... uh decided to go back again but I mean he really is Cork Hurling and uh, you know he's um, it's, he did a, he did a fantastic job before and you know it's hard to argue that he's not doing a great job again really because he's moved the profile you know he's only there it's in his second year he's moved the profile of the team on a lot now I suppose the fact that they were the fact that they were relegated you see that probably opens opens any management team to criticism because you know the Division 1A is seen as being so important but you know, ultimately, you know, Jimmy, as Jimmy said last Sunday, you worry about that next uh, next January or February, really. It's, it, it's totally immaterial now. And, you know, there have been occasions in the past. I can remember Cork, and I think Cork might have been relegated in 1990 and uh, still went on to win the, the All-Ireland in 1990. So, 
you know, it's it's the league is not as important to Cork as it may be for Tipperary or and, and how they play in, in the um, in the league. You know, for Tipperary, they need they, they they need to be consistent in the league because they they ultimately play like that in the championship. Whereas traditionally, Cork have they they can they can be poor in the league and play in, in the championship. But that does, I suppose, that's where the the, the criticism was coming from and the pressure on uh, <clears throat> on Cork last Sunday and then with the players who were you know the players injured and. You know, ultimately, you know, I suppose, I suppose John Gardner, you know, he has claims that he, that's, you know, he, he can be, uh, in, in, he could be involved. But I mean, ultimately, that comes down to the manager, and the manager picks the team. And uh, if uh, it's hard to argue after Sunday that, um, you know, William Egan and uh, Tom Kenny and you know, and Brian Murphy didn't do a great job in the half back line, you know. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's hard. I think it was. Jimmy was Nick was on the line on on Sunday, but it's been on it's been on the line before, and he's uh, he's he's an experienced manager, and and he did you know it's it's not a whole lot different to what he did in '99, and, and it proved to be uh, successful in '99, yeah. and uh, well, he's up and running again. When you have that sort of status within a county, and you're managing the team, and you're getting a bit of stick from some quarters, uh, and I'm talking about you particularly here, Nicky, say in your own experiences, do you ever feel like turning around and saying, "Hang on a second, I'm Nicky English." <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. You're trying to maybe keep your head down. Really, is what you're trying to do when when the criticism is there, because it, that's the way it, that's the way it is. I mean, if you're, I think if you, if you if you, I mean, if as a player, people don't criticize players really because they don't they don't necessarily think that they can uh, they can do it they can play as well as the player can play. But I mean, anybody can be a co- anybody anybody can be a manager or pick a team really in their own minds, and uh, so. Ultimately, they can be, they can criticise any decision you make if 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 the uh, if there's a defeat there really and and that's 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 just the nature of that's just na- the nature of the job and the, the whole I suppose intensity and the whole spotlight on hurling has increased over the years and tis, uh, and the manager really is is treated as a, as a premiership manager now effectively even though he's, you know in many cases they have to work al- alongside it you know Malachy's legendary status as a player give managers any sort of insulation against criticism maybe at the start there's always going to be excitement that they've taken over but as soon as the bad results start happening is there any difference in how they're perceived compared to somebody who might come in from outside I think it goes on a, on a sort of case by case basis uh, Jimmy Barry Murphy would nearly need to take Cork down to the Christie Ring Cup really <laughs> for for his status in Cork to to take any real sort of hit. I mean, you know, like Cork as a county with, with a multitude of sporting heroes, but I mean, Jimmy is more or less in the top three there with along with Ring and Keane, essentially. Um, so he sort of stands apart. Like it's it's not it's not even really like Davy Fitzgerald in 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 Clare. You know, uh, there would be reasonably sized factions in Clare that are kind of waiting for Davy to move on and Anthony Daly to come back or something like that. You know, there would be bigger heroes. Um, and I think that that insulation will be around Jimmy for quite a while, uh, especially if he if he wins the Munster title. Why, why would there be those factions against Davy Fitzgerald, the guy well, who he's just, so much as a player? Because he's just he's, he's a different figure to what Jimmy Barry Murphy is to the people of Cork. Like Davy, even even at, at the height of his uh, playing career for, for Clare, and he got up to... He, 
I don't know if he actually passed Christy Ring's appearance record in the end, but he certainly got to within a game or two of it. So he is a, a, a sort of bona fide legend. But just his personality and uh, the sort of because the club rivalry in, in Clare was, was so uh, ferocious at times. Um, they're obviously, you know, Davey is a divisive figure. He, split, he splits people. Uh, Jimmy isn't that. Like, Jimmy got the job, A, because he had won an All-Ireland with them before, B, because he is who he is, but C, he was seen as the sort of, the the uniting figure that would bring all the factions together after all those strikes. And, you know, he was obviously, uh, you know, county board people would be behind him, but also the the Donalogue uh, section would all have been behind him because... If you're against Jimmy Barry Murphy, you're against, you know you're against every, everything that is right, and so I think that that insulates him for for a while. Um, and you know, results went against them last year. They weren't great. I mean, they got to an All Ireland semi final, but you know, they, they, nobody was overly blown away by them. Um, it would have been interesting to see what people what the reaction would have been had they lost last week. But uh, I think he's really fine for for as long as he wants now. Is it easier, Nicky, if you're a guy like Jim McGuinness or even, or maybe Brian Cody's an even uh, more pertinent example, a respected player, but doesn't have that sort of huge uh, reputation that brings maybe perhaps its own pressure? I know, but I think really, it, Karen, it's not easy for anybody. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. You know, you ultimately, whoever is going to go in and 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 do the job as manager, really, they're going to be they're ultimately going to be judged on their performance as manager, and uh, and I I think. You know, regardless of whether you have legendary status, now I, I agree 100% with what Maliki said, where, where Jimmy is absolute god in Cork, and he can, he could have, he was probably the only one who could be seen to be, to pull all the factions together. But I, I don't, going back to your question, I, I don't necessarily think it, it, it really makes any difference. I think ultimately you're going to be judged on on, on how the team plays when, under your stewardship, and that's, that's ultimately not always... Um, you you not always just purely down to the manager. You you obviously need the players as well, you know. But uh, going going back, I think you were, we were talking earlier about you know the tactical uh, or maybe lack of tactics with the Cork Cork team, and it'd be hard to argue or, or hard to, to make that argument after last Sunday, really. Where you know there's a lot of there's a lot of brains behind that Cork outfit, not not just Jimmy, but you know, Jerk Cunningham and Shawnee McGuire, Kieran Kingston, Johnny Crowley. You know they have a huge amount of experience and. Um, you know, to put the place in a Brian Murphy on uh, on Tony Kelly really didn't. Uh, you, you know, showed a good, showed a lot of tactical awareness really, and you know the simplicity of the game that they play really. You know, ultimately, that's in my view, the tactics are relatively simple and straightforward in, in hurling, and um, you know they they use they they they, they play that perfectly. You know, whereas on the other side. You know, Claire tried to really overcomplicate things and play it short out of defence and hold the ball and you know the conditions and you know it's, it, that's a difficult game to play. You really need to be a super team to do that. And uh, I, I would think it, I would argue it to be hard, you know, to play or to win to win an All Ireland in such a structured manner. That's interesting because that ties in. It's almost the reverse of what John Gardner was saying. Oh well, absolutely. I mean, and and that's why that's what I was saying about it. That once you read between the lines, there, uh, Gardner didn't, I think, mean it in a per, in a perfectly uh, complimentary way. But I mean, obviously, any inter county team going out at that, are, are they're not just playing off the cuff. I mean, that's that's crazy to even sort of suggest in this day and age. But um, they they absolutely got their matchups right on Sunday. 
and that was you know that's that's sort of half the battle. Yeah, next again, Murph, the Dublin Kilkenny replay. Yeah, and uh, I mean it was uh, obviously a pretty uh, surprising result on Sunday, but the whole idea, I suppose, now Nikki is can Dublin. Uh, replicated and is there any reason why they can't and that's you know it's it's a silly thing that we always talk about when we're coming up to replays uh, sure they won't be able to do it the second day there's no real reason why they can't No no th- there's not really because you know they're into a pattern they've played the last three weeks um, every chance that they'll play at least as well maybe even they could possibly improve a little bit because I'd say you know they 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 have they had lost a lot lot of confidence a lost a lost a lot of their belief in themselves um you know since over the past twelve months really and uh, even though they beat Limerick like really it didn't it didn't do a huge amount from because Tipperary hammered them in the league semi final so there is a possibility yeah that Dublin could improve a little bit again and um, and you know that with, with that belief coming back but. You know, I suppose the other side of it, I'd say, is that there's a, there's every chance that Kilkenny, um, you know, would be more aware, um, not more aware, but more more prepared for for next weekend. Even though, you know, Kilkenny are not exactly setting the world on fire just now and seem to be uh, seem to be stuck in a in a in, in, a, in a, a bit of a rut themselves, really, following on from the league final. Um, so yeah, there's 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 every chance that Dublin could. Would, would, We'll get close, and I said, on their side, I said, there's very little chance that Kilkenny will come out and, and blow them away, and I'd agree with that. Vicky yeah. English, Malky Clerk, and brilliant stuff. Thank you both. Now, stop everything. It is time for the most important part of Second Captains of the Irish Times. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I've got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Born and bred, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a place called Navin. <laughs> a very lonely sounding yeah, lone wolf Well, it's, it's a wolf house, yeah. I suppose. It's supposed to be lonely. But uh, yes, it's time for the Pierce Brosnan Immigrant Shoutouts, where we say hello to our uh, uh, brothers and sisters worldwide. And we've had some very exotic locations over the last couple of weeks. Galapagos Islands two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Iguazu Falls last week. And now, hi lads, loving the new show, listening here on Easter Island. Cheers from Donegal lad, Kevin wow. O'Connor. So that is pretty impressive now. Uh, and then I thought, Maybe this lad's just sitting in a bar in Letterkenny and just fancy pulling my leg, simultaneously demeaning the greatest slot on Irish radio. So I asked Kevin for pictorial evidence, which, in fairness, he has provided. Then I thought, well, maybe he could have just had a round-the-world ticket and it stopped off there six months ago. But really, am I really going to get him to get another photograph holding a sign that says hashtag PBESO and a copy of that day's paper? <sighs> well, yes. Yes, I am. So uh, get on it, Kevin, and then you will be ratified as a genuine P-Bezo. Now, I know I'm not supposed to be... I'm supposed to be a stickler for rules and regulations, and certainly lads on the J1 don't normally qualify as P-Bezo material, but I have to give a special mention to John, Aina and Kevin, who appear to be having a great time while being stationed in possibly the most boring J1 location imaginable. They're currently making sandwiches in a subway in Ocean City, Maryland. (laughs) I I don't know what, what happens. You know, you plan your J1, New York, Chicago... San Francisco, and you end up in a subway in uh, in Maryland. They did in, end their email to me with yours in sport, though, which I, I always appreciate. I was trying to go to San Francisco for my J1. Couldn't get the J1 trip yeah. via use it or whoever was organising. So ended up having to take Chicago and get a Greyhound bus all the way over to 
San Francisco. That's a short trip, isn't it? Forty nine hours or something. <laughs> That's interesting characters in that Greyhound bus when you cross I'm sure two thirds of America on it. I'll tell you. That. I'm sure there was. Uh, Brendan Breen, your brother Seamus, wrote me a three page essay about your obsession with me, including a paparazzi shot taken without my permission, and begged for a P bezel on your behalf. So there you go. I have also changed the locks on my door, you freak. Uh, Audrey O'Brien also wrote me an extremely long email outlining his hopes, fears, and desires for the coming 20 years of his life, so I'm mentioning, mentioning him purely so he doesn't send me another email of similar length next week. In fact, it appears to be a recurring theme that this slot attracts our more verbose listeners, <laughs> but we do appreciate the effort. God knows I've little else for doing around the office. Speaking of stalkers, Ken McGannon was stalking our producer Mark Horgan around Enniscorthy there a few weeks ago and was so anxious to get a mention on P. Bezel that he emigrated to Perth specifically for that reason. Uh, Connor Murphy from Haiti says hello. Uh, Matthew Cogan writes, Dear Pierce, I trust you do personally read each of these masters. I think you may have missed yours, Matthew, but anyway, give us an old shout-out on the P. Bezel slot. By the way, any chance you could bring on some crying mammies just to round off the 80s emigration nostalgia feel? Matthew Cogan, working from home in underpads and socks, Manhattan, <laughs> NYC. That's glamour. And uh, Julie Murphy says, Hello, y'all from, southern, uh, from the southern United States. Please say hello to my husband, Andrew. He's living in Atlanta, Georgia. We both love your show, but I'm moving home to Dublin this weekend, so he'll be on his own in the US oh, no. next Tuesday. Thanks, Julie. Uh, that is terribly sad. But then again, Andrew, I am claiming Julie's return as another successful outcome for Pierce Preston's <laughs> Preston's Evergood shout-outs. So get over it. And uh, all you students out there, there's still time to go on your J1, isn't there? No, probably mm. not. End of June. Uh, oh, well, looks like it's crappy old Ireland for you again this summer. And with that in mind, if you want to mention on, mention on P. Bezel... Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! <laughs> so that's something to live by. That's Pierce Brosnan, obviously, in Taffin, the high watermark for thespianism. Uh, you know, in the last three or four thousand years, I'd say. You can email us in. And email uh, at second or editor at secondcaptains.com or you can contact us on Twitter at secondcaptains. Sounds good. We are going to talk rugby now because the Lions have won again today. Not that that particular result mattered too much, but they're motoring well heading into the second test next weekend, which we're going to look forward to now with Shane Horgan and Trevor Hogan. I guess we have to look back a little bit at the first test, Trevor, without getting too into the ins and outs of it, but just the this idea that the amount of preparation that went into it, the minute detail that both coaches would have gone into, and ultimately it comes down to essentially the way the victory was achieved makes a mockery of all those preparations. Maybe if you look at it on a kind of superficial level, it might seem that it just comes down to one or two small things. But I think it's a combination of all those things throughout a game, and that's why you can't really dismiss the level of preparation. I think if you look at it from a distance, you'll see the influence of certain players and how crucial they were. Obviously, you have the George North and the Falau um, performances, but someone like Johnny Sexton, which I, I look back on, and he's just he orchestrated the team so well, and he changed the game at a crucial moments. Uh, he's doing things that other out halves don't do really, and. It's 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 around the thing, you know. He's choking players. He's chipping and he's gathering and he's he's spotting where uh, seven the Hooper was in the centre and those are the things that add up to the opportunities that like so you know the Lions really shouldn't have been in the game, but uh, or you know Australia if they'd kicked their take their chances it wouldn't have come down it wouldn't have come down to Curtly Beal in the last second. Mm. Now I know if you look at it and think Jesus it's just one last one kick could to win it, but you have to look at it in a round. Yeah, we're kind round. of thinking why is Warren Gatlin taking a year off work to prepare for the Lions tour when really all you need is George North on the wing to yeah. Yeah, run one in. it might it might look like that, but you have to take into account the, the, the other factors like how Sexton's playing, how Phillips is playing and why it all boils down to, to one thing. Shane, the Sexton thing is interesting, particularly in light of Paul O'Connell being gone. They're talking about 
losing a, a clear leader there. But I think it's only becoming apparent, certainly to people worldwide, how much of a leader Johnny Sexton is now and the way that he plays the game. And I also saw a couple of people writing that apparently in the pre-match huddle, the two people speaking were Sam Warburton and Johnny Sexton, which was interesting because you think O'Driscoll and O'Connell might be chiming in there as well. Yeah, it's not surprising though for me. Uh, I think someone of um, sex and stature now and the position he plays at 10, he has, as Trent said there, a huge influence on the game. Um, and as a result, he will have a lot of specific ideas that he'll want to um, send out to the rest of the team. He'll want them to follow a certain pattern. And it'll be him that will be directing them a lot. Because I think a lot, of, a lot of the direction does come from, from Sexton at 10. I would think maybe uh, leadership is a little bit overstated in the Lions tour because. You know, if you're good enough to go on the Lions tour, you're probably almost in a leadership position um, in your own team or in your own national squad. But and you certainly will be when you come back. With us. The, the the Lions gives you a sort of um, a knowledge and it gives you a, a leadership role when you go back. But for me, um, I think the people that are most interested in what you—it's not about so much leadership on Lions tours, but you want people to affect the game. That's, that's, and that's what Johnny Sexton has been doing right the way through this tour. And I think the people who affect the game and want to get those touches and want to, are hungry and want to influence the game, I think they're the key members of the side and they're the ones that change the tour. And I thought that was that's something that happened on Saturday. I thought Sexton really stood up. He wanted to influence the game. He wanted to get touches. And in fairness, a lot of the touches were, were really classy as well. And you saw the same thing similarly from, from Genia, I think, at uh, nine. Uh, for the Australian team. He was someone who had a huge influence on the game, uh, you know, really overshadowed Mike Phillips, I thought. And, uh, you know, for long stages of the game, I thought he was pretty much controlling it. Yeah, and, and just to follow on from that, just people who want to influence the game, someone who, who's doing that is Paul O'Connell, and his loss is going to be huge. He's just so hungry to carry, and he's so hungry to even get in at the breakdown, despite... Pollock's interpretation, he was able to affect changes there. Um, I suppose the thing about Sexton, if you contrast him with uh, James O'Connor and his maybe lack of influence at 10, you, you see how important that role is and how important, as Shane is saying, individuals, they can put their stamp on the game. And unfortunately, I don't think James O'Connor was able to do that. It was harsh on him playing at 10, not able to direct it. So it'd be a worry for the Lions that they'll, they'll spot that and realise how important that role is. I'm interested, weekend. yeah. And I'm interested, Shane, in just you talking about those pre-match huddles. I well, is it? It's not so much the show us your effing pride kind of stuff going on there. It's actually more just one or two tactical pointers before kickoff. I, listen, there's always a bit of that, but it's been moved away. I think you know, sport, professional sport, has moved away from effing and blinding and screaming and see who has the biggest shout and you know, tell people saying what they're going to do on the field. I think there's a big movement away from that. Um, certainly, there's a level of aggression that some players find beneficial and some find necessary. Uh, to perform at their best, uh, but very often, you know, for me, the, the people who are most influential and the people that I listen to most in the changing room, or, or you, the type of person who tried to be in the changing room, was someone who, um, who married the both of them. You know, who yes, you had to bring everybody knows you had to bring a certain level of aggression and, and combat to the game, but also let's let's have a think and reinforce the structures behind. The, the, uh, the conflict and reinforce the ideas of what you're trying to implement out there and yeah you have to implement those ideas uh, aggressively but you know it's they're the most important things there's nothing worse than someone screaming and shouting you know in, in a huddle and just really talking nonsense and I think you know a lot of professional sports rugby in particular has moved beyond that yeah that's vital isn't it to be able to back it up and I think that was something that came through 
this tour especially Paul O'Connell was ta- saying about how everyone's a lot more quiet and calm and actually go out and, you know produce the goods on the on the field um but uh, yeah, it's, it's about getting that balance right, and it comes down to individuals. I remember Malcolm O'Kelly saying to me that he used to hate people screaming and shouting in, in the change room, and he never he never reacted to that anyway. So it can be counterproductive. Yeah. Obviously, Mal is someone though. So you have to recognise what what works, and you know, as Shane was saying, the, the level of lads you're playing with in, in a Lions tour is, is is such that they don't need to be you know you know encouraged to pr- produce. You know. Well, Owen actually always gets me up against the wall, pins me up against the wall, and gives me a few digs into the stomach just to get me into the right the right frame. In mind every Tuesday morning. It works for me. It does. You know, yeah. That's just me. Yeah, but you, it can be counterproductive. Honestly, uh, I've been in training rooms, and I'm sure Trent's been in the same training rooms with me. When you have sort of been looking around and going, "I wish that guy would shut up," because <laughs> it's just nonsense being talked there, you know. And maybe that is something that was, you know, I was a number of years ago, but um, it is something that I think has, has changed because guys roaring and screaming, you know, it can't. It's very often it's counterproductive. And what you do have, and what Johnny Sexton in particular does, he's you know, he's certainly very aggressive you know um, in the way he's getting it across but he's it's also you know it, it's ice upstairs and that's what we used to say you know with fire in the belly and ice upstairs so you know really controlled talking about where you wanted the runners how many guys you wanted to commit to rope what we were going to do with the first line out of scrum and I think you know that's to a large degree that's what was done and you saw that and I didn't do anything spectacular at the weekend. I didn't uh, think that they played a spectacular game. I thought they played very much along the, the lines that we thought they might play. And it was just enough because, to be honest with you, Australia weren't the side that we've seen over the last, I don't know how many years. I didn't think they... It's very obvious that they have the coach that isn't is as inventive as normal Australian coach. You thought they were going to win, Shane, last week. You thought yeah. that the Aussies might actually win it. I thought they. I thought they would. I thought they would. I thought. Uh, I thought the, they would have moved the ball a little bit wider, and that would have made things a little bit easier for them. I thought their kicking game actually got a little bit too loose, and that that um, the Lions made them pay for that. I thought that when they tightened up their kicking game, they looked more effective in the second half. But I, I, I did think Australia were going to win because some of the key areas the, that the Lions were playing and were worrying was worrying me. And I thought a couple of the individuals they picked, I think they were picking them off the basis of um, prior prior performances, but not in this tour. Like I, I still think Sean O'Brien should be in the, in the team. I have to say, nothing has changed my mind from that from last weekend, or uh, certainly from today's game either. So Sean had another big game today. And I think the idea of picking Croft as a line-out option is fine. But um, if you look at the line, the way the line-out went at the weekend, yes, they did use Croft a lot of two. But, you know, they were, you know, you can use your second row with two. And the idea was maybe use Croft at the back of the line-out or use someone else at the back of the line-out. And the ball never went to the back of the line-out. I think it went once the whole game they threw, not at two or uh, at four coming forward. So... I think Sean O'Brien, if you're gonna if you're gonna look for a team that that is is, is physical and going to try and beat up the Australians, and I think that's what they're trying to do. I think you got to have Sean on the team. The key point there, Trevor, is that he played well today, scored a try, but also got taken off nice and early. Exactly, yeah. And what Shane is saying as well, Sean can do a job for you at the front of the line. He's quite explosive there. Um, for me, I don't think I know. I, I, reading into it, it looks like Sean will probably be on the bench and he's going to stick with Croft again, which is, it just doesn't make sense for me. Added to what Shane is saying there, Croft is much more suited to the wider challenge, as you all know, with that pace. But the, the nature of these, these games, these tests, it seems like the Lions are going to be carrying a lot uh, in the in the close challenge, off nine, running hard back against the grain. What Croft seems to do, he runs across 
across a little of, uh, of the field and he uses his step, uses his pace, but he runs a little bit away from support and he can get isolated and he's not ex- explosive as Sean. Sean is perfect to take those balls. He ru- he'll run over, lads, and he must, might even get a few offloads, as we saw today even. He's, uh, he's ideal for that, but I just don't know... I think looking at today, it probably be he definitely should be getting ahead of Lydia on the bench, you know. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, it's, I think the vibe I, I get is that Croft are happy enough in him. But they did bring Croft on too as well today, so it's funny you know. also that it seems that from what we're hearing, the Australians are delighted that Sean O'Brien's not in the team. They've seen what yeah. he can do at close hand, at close quarters. So we'll see if anything changes there. Shane, just another theme that came out of last weekend was quite an obvious one. A lot of people were talking about it and writing about these giant wings who were scoring all the tries uh, very impressive physical specimens as our very own giant wing do you think you have to be sort of six foot four and that kind of size that kind of bulk to be playing international wing these days well you don't have to be you know and I suppose Shane Williams has, has proved that over the years um, that he's a phenomenal uh, try scoring record but you know it's, 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 it doesn't uh, do you any harm you know I think you're, when you're talking about George North and um, Israel Salah I think you're talking about two like exceptional like freaky individuals as well. You know, there's being tall and there's being big, but these guys are just, you know, they're monsters. And uh, like we've been talking about George North for quite a while now. We've seen what he's done on a couple of occasions against Ireland. We've seen, like, I, I was, um, what's amazing for me is the size of his lower body, huge upper body. That's sort of a, a normal thing in, in rugby now. But like his ties, the power that he can generate from that when he gets up and running, but the step off his uh, off his right foot to go around. Um, the uh, Aussie fullback Barrett Barnes, like that was, he, he's no slouch either, and he destroyed him. Finished it off. It was one of the classiest finishes I'd seen in a long time. But he was going up against, you know, I suppose his counterpart in Falao, who I remember seeing, I think he was exposed on the scene a number of years ago when he, he played his first uh, State of Origin game at uh, at 19 and scored three tries. And he's he's really, really is an exceptional player. And for me, you know, if I was playing on either in the Lions, uh, Lions coaching staff or Australian coaching staff, these are the kind of guys that I'd be trying to get um, the ball in their hands, especially Falao. I think he was underused. He's not a kind of guy who goes looking for work. Um, I think that much more so North is probably a little bit of a smarter footballer. He really, really tries to get on the ball and again influence the game. Whereas Falao, you actually have to get the ball into his hands and then just say, go on, do your thing. And I don't think that the the way the Australians are playing, I don't think they're playing to their traditional strengths. And they are playing more like a what you'd expect in New Zealand um, provincial side to play. And I don't think that's going to win, especially now that their number's down. You needed to go after this Lions team uh, around the edges because I think in Cuthbert, and maybe it's one of the few weaknesses of the Norse game, you get to the last, um, there are areas you can go after. And Australia just didn't do that enough in the weekend. Yeah, the, the Falao thing is amazing. Just to see him, he's just such an exceptional, you know, athlete. What he's doing is is unique. I haven't really seen it in rugby, so I'd like to see what Shane thinks about it. He's kind of using that Aussie rules style. He's getting his knee as leverage off even halfpenny to get up in the air, and he's catching balls like that you don't really see since the likes of Shane and his GA skills. Um, you, you know, he's someone that the Lions will have to be careful, as Shane is saying. The Australians going to try and use him a bit more, but the Lions actually created opportunities by Mike Phillips' loose enough box kick. Mm. going along and it allowed allowed them to use Falao on the counter-attack obviously Genia used him as well but possibly he could even be used more but just he's so dangerous to his feet and but that that Aussie rules skill in the air they're going to possibly use a little bit more Shane uh, didn't yeah the other thing he, the other thing he has uh, and you know North has this as well he's a 
you know, massive leaders, but Falau, like nobody else, he's got this handoff, and he kind of sort of runs away from his body. So his he's he's leaning uh, against the defender coming in. He's got a massive straight arm, and the player can just get nowhere near him. And it's it's very very hard to defend that because you know the tra- traditional approach would be you try and knock down the arm, and then you see Rob Carney, you see Gordon Darcy did it his whole career, knock down the arm and then go in underneath it. But because his lever is so long, even if you knock down that arm, because he's kept the distance between. Uh, his hand and his body, you can't get in and make the tackle. So, it's you know, I said earlier on in the tour that I thought George North is almost unplayable. But if you give Falao space, he's almost unplayable as well. And that's, you know, that makes for very interesting uh, matches up when they get the ball. Yeah, just on selection coming into next week, Cuthbert obviously got his try. I don't think people are talking about him the same breath quite as Falao and George North there. Is there a chance that Tommy Ball can come back into the team? We've already said that Sean O'Brien should probably be there. Maybe this is all a little bit biased, but I think the Sean O'Brien one is logical enough. Tommy Ball or anyone else coming into that team, do you think? I'd say Tommy Ball, possibly. Um, he, they're, they're wrapping him in cotton wool there to, tonight anyway, and he, whether he'll, he'll come on into the starting team, I, I don't know. I, I'd say probably bench ahead of Maitland. Mm. Um, Cuthbert probably did enough of the, you know, he's still, as Shane said, he's a little bit lost sometimes defensively, and maybe that's a wider issue with defensive structure, but, uh, you know, he probably did enough there with that try at the weekend to keep him keep himself in the 15. The interest in what Shane is saying about Falao's handoff there, even Johnny Sick, when he scored, when he stepped inside Johnny, like, Johnny's a really strong defender, and, you know, he, he said he tried to show him the outside, but you, you actually can't show him outside or inside, he's going to take both options, you know, he's got that feet, and he's got that little step that, that uh, Shane's talking about so you know he's a real he's almost unplayable now Shane any changes in the team? Yeah I, I'm not sure you know again I don't think uh, I, I'm being one eye, but I, I just think Tommy Bow is just uh, an exceptional exceptional player and has been exceptional uh, on this tour so far you know if I was picking the team I, I'd have him in it because he defends so superbly and we saw it earlier on the tour I think you know some of the best um, wing defence I've seen in a very long time. How Bobby Tommy, uh, Tommy was really just coming on, and um, he was coming on to right at the top of his game when he got injured. Now you're taking a bit of a risk. You don't know whether how his uh, hand is will it affect him. Um, if there is a, if a chance that it is still affecting, then you really can't go with him. It's not an option. But if he's not having pain, if he's tackling okay, uh, it's not affecting his catching, then I certainly put him in ahead of Cuthbert. Um, I don't know if they will. I think it's more likely that they'll put him on um, on the bench. And that means uh, Maitland drops out. There's no Scott really there. That might mean you might look at they might bring Gray. I know it shouldn't happen in this day and age, but it's sort of, you're always looking sort of to get someone from from all the countries in. So I think Gray might just tick the box on the bench for um, for the Scott that will allow um, Maitland to drop out and then uh, Tommy maybe to come in. Uh, you know, he gives you huge options. Um, aside from that, I can't see too many uh, changes. You know, Hibbert, I thought, did well today. His line-out looked a lot stronger. Um, Young was throwing the ball at two, so we don't know. I think just because Australia have lost so many uh, players, I think it's going to be a little bit easier for the Lions this week. But if they were picking the same team, if Australia had the same picks from last week, I would have been saying that we had to change up the lineup and we had to be getting more off the top or, or near the back because that ball at two was just, it just wasn't allowing us to get over the game line in any, in any effective way. And as a result... Yeah. It was much more difficult to get the, the to get going off uh, second and third phase ball. You're going for the Lions this week, then, Shane? Yeah, yeah, I think the Lions. Yeah, I, I really went. I was thinking about um, 
uh, Australia last week. I, I, I tipped them. I thought maybe you know the lines would come back down this week and we'd have a real um, uh, fire up for uh, next week. Uh, uh, winner takes all. But the Australians have just lost so many numbers. I think the yeah, lines will have learned as well. We actually don't have to be massively inventive to win this game. We don't have to be hugely creative. And that's good because I don't think Gatland is a hugely creative coach, but they have they can just go in out and pick these monster men that they have now and I think grind down Australia again. You know, a few more injuries during the game and they just don't have the firepower to compete. I'd probably be leaning towards Australia I think for this weekend I think they're probably they're really bitter when they lose Australia and they manage to come back hard and if they can get their place kicking right if they, if Christian Liafano is okay maybe he'd be a much more solid option there plus with Beal at 10 if they go for that option and Falau at 15 you know just what what, what a serious threat they'll, they'll possess and I, I think it could end up going on to the third test Who are you going for Murph? Ah, oh, come on. Nobody cares. No, no one cares. You fall for this one everywhere. You've done, you you covered up a little bit there. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say the lines, just just so I have it on record. Shane, whatever about the physique of Falau we were talking about there, I must say, Trevor's sitting in studio with us here, and he's probably Disgusting twice, he's twice the here. size. I've never seen Murph look so <laughs> pathetic. I'm basically hiding under the table here, Shane. Well, listen, I felt pathetic when I was in the changing room with Falau. <laughs> keep it clean, Shane, keep it clean. I I was an athlete at the time. I thought maybe I could get one of your Pierce Brosnan's uh, immigrant shout-outs, though. Well, you, you know, player cards, right? I mean, we're going. <laughs> if you could just go through the regular channels, Shane. I mean, I th- <laughs> I think, yeah. you're putting me uh, in a I bit of an awkward situation. Uh, yeah, here. okay, okay. Yeah, something you can't you can't change. Uh, you can't yeah. uh, bypass some channels. Okay, there are uh, rules. I'll get in. Editor, 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 that's yeah, that's the one. That's something a bit of creating yeah. once. I've hit the broody jigs. Don't worry. Shane Organ, brilliant stuff. Trevor Hogan, great stuff. Thank you. Sound. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Second captains at the Irish Times. Available Tuesdays on iTunes and irishtimes.com. You are now watching the throne. Don't Trevor could have at least blown a flaggy jumper or something. I think they were saying to, to me left the studio there, but no, those I'd, tight tank tops, they're not... Yes, not doing it for me. Well, I mean, it wasn't quite a... T- I mean, they did have some <laughs> sleeves, but I mean, the sleeve was wholly incapable of performing the task for which a sleeve is made, i.e., you know... You know, shielding yourself from the just the awesome physique underneath. I mean, it's really quite something. Rafa Nadal often eschews sleeves altogether. Yeah, yeah, he's he's got the same problem as Trevor. People were quite charmed by Nadal, even in defeat, because he didn't talk about his knee injury or didn't use no. it as an excuse. Oh, he barely mentioned the knee at all. Uh, he 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 was very explicit about it. On afterwards, he said, "Look, I'm not going to sit here talking about my knee." You know, if I was to sit here talking about the knee, that would be just making excuses. My, you know, my let's give this guy, knee. this guy, give, let's give this guy the credit that he deserves. He played great. You know, my knee has got nothing to do with what happened out there on the knee, the court. And, <laughs> you know, I was, I was watching Nadal uh, in this, and I thought to him, and this may be unfair, maybe an unfair criticism, because in fairness, he, he at least was aware in the, in the formal sense that it wouldn't be right for him to sit there sulking, going, well, I had a knee problem, and, you know, how do you expect... You know, he, he, he was, at least in the, in the sort of uh, ostensible way, 
trying to give the credit to his opponent and play down his own injury. But I wondered if Nadal, when he's, how many times do you see him when he's actually winning a game on the court, suddenly start grabbing a hold of his knee and sort of limping around and and, and so you're saying a little that bit. this knee injury through which he missed about seven months of the season is fictitious and only comes about when he's losing matches. Well, I, I, I just, I, I don't know. It, it, does it happen with equal frequency in matches when Rafael Nadal is is winning that he starts moaning a little bit about the knee? Well, look, we know tennis players are toughies. I mean, Victoria Azarenka, for example, I don't know if people saw this yesterday. She played through the pain barrier and what pain it was. God, God, I actually, I, I feel like I shouldn't even ask this question because, you know, tennis is secondary. But, I mean, she she did survive this, right? She's still alive. Not only is she still alive, Murph, she's through to the next round of women. <laughs> she won 6-1-6-1, six, 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 one, six, one, was yeah. it? She couldn't possibly have recovered from such a... Well, I mean, life-threatening is... It's an overused phrase, but on that, on that occasion, it did sound at least... See, that did look, as it sounded at first glance, mm. to be a very serious injury. She twisted her knee, she reacted like that, and you just thought, Azarenka is not long for this world, or at least this career, Ken. Yeah, I mean, Maybe was, a slight overreaction. It looked a bit out. painful, but look, what, what's she reacting to, Owen? Is, it, is she reacting really to the shooting pain from her knee, or also the possible destruction of her Wimbledon dream? Those two things were bound up in that reaction, and that scream... Uh, that we heard. I don't think it was entirely about the neon. It was also about the tournament. And thankfully, both are still on the cards. Until she until she gets hammered by Serena. At some stage in the next two weeks, we don't know when, though. Huge fight in the early hours of Sunday morning. Matthew Macklin challenges for the World 2 World Middleweight titles at Foxwoods MGM Grand Casino in Connecticut against the unbeaten Gennady Golovkin, who is a fairly serious operator, to say the least. The coverage of this one is on Sky Sports 1, so you can watch it on that. Uh, starts at 2am, that's the coverage, so they won't be into the ring for a good while after that, but worth waiting up for, at least watching it in the morning. This is Macklin's third attempt to win the world title. Delighted to say that he joins us now ahead of the big fight. Matthew, we're only a few days away now. Are you at the slightly kind of narky stage at this point? Yeah, a little bit. You can feel the nastiness creeping in. <laughs> I love, uh, but no, no, definitely... Um week you know all the hard training is done but you do get that extra bit of a focus it's only a few days now uh, a lot of press things the media workout tomorrow and um you know on wednesday then we'll have the press conference we'll head up to foxwoods then probably on the evening so yeah day by day now you can feel the fight getting closer and obviously the you know the, the anticipation builds as well it's your third attempt now at the world title and you and many others uh, just about everybody I think believed you should have been given the decision in the first one against Felix Storm and you acquitted yourself very well against Sergio Martinez is there any difference in the build up to this one are you a bit more comfortable and relaxed having gone through the experience a couple of times before yeah definitely I think at the press conference when they announced the fight you kind of have the feeling look I've been here before but I belong at this stage now not that you know, your first one, you you believe you are, but, you know, you're, you're stepping up to unknown territory where, you know, this time, like you say, it's my third attempt. And, I've, you know, even the, the, the fight with Alcine, he was a former world champion. It was on a big show in Vegas. So you get used to performing at that higher level. And, uh, yeah, and I feel a lot more comfortable and, and, and confident. And it's a tough fight and it's stylistically different to the other two. But, um, you know, ultimately a fight that I'm very confident that I'll win. Do you have to go into this, Matthew? I know you're only 31 and you, you could fight for plenty more years if you wanted to, but it's a, a dangerous enough game to be involved in. Do you go in with, into this fight with the feeling that this is my last shot of glory? Is that the kind of mindset you want to take in? 
I wouldn't say quite as 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 final as that now, but I, I yeah, you're aware. Look, I, I fought for the world title twice. This is my third one. You know, I don't want to be just because I don't want to be a bridesmaid all my life. Do you know what I mean? I want to actually go there and uh, become world champion. And I just think that uh, you know, I'm, I'm a better fighter now than I fought when I fought Sergio and Sturm. That bit bit of experience is. Uh, you know, I think it made me a better fighter. And, uh, you know, ironically, it's it's the last Saturday in June for the WBA with a title, just the same as it was for Sturm. So, uh, a <laughs> bit of a yeah. bit of irony there. So, now I'm uh, looking forward to the fight. It's, um, yeah, it is, it is the third opportunity. And you, you're not going to keep getting opportunities either if you, if you don't keep, you know, if you keep losing. So, um, no, even though the other two fights were very close fights, um, you know, they, they, they're definitely going to be third time lucky this time. I know you can't, you wouldn't be going into it fight week thinking about the person about prize money and about what might come after a victory but when you do have time to think about it Matthew and you're getting into your 30s are you getting to the point where you really you have to you have to think how secure you're going to be after your career ends and I'm just wondering are you kind of getting to that stage yet because you're not a world champion but you've been fighting in these high profile fights have you got to the stage where you can start to think you're going to be comfortable yeah no listen if it ended tomorrow I'll be I'll be more than okay you know I'd be like you say I've been in a, one of the glamour divisions and involved, involved in some of the big, big fights. So no, I'm, I'm that. That's not, it's more the uh, achieving your dreams and winning that world title. That's that's what's kind of burning inside me. And uh, like I say, when I turned professional, I thought that I would have had the ability to go on and become world champion. You know, I won the Irish title, um, the British title, European title twice. You know, like I said, I did beat Felix Stone, didn't get the decision. I fought Madison Square Garden against Sergio Martinez, pushed him all the way. So. Oh, it's just the only thing eluding me at the minute now is the, is the world title. And, uh, yeah, like you said, the, the fight week, you just focused on the fight. But, of course, you know, winning this fight as well, it will take you into a, it. It is It will be kind of life-changing um, as well because of the the, the, the fights that will put you into after that. You're talking pay-per-view kind of fights then where, like, like you say, financially, it is life-changing. Does that create any, any extra pressure in a sport like yours? Um, I don't know. I, I think don't think pressure. Like, there's always a, there's always a certain amount of pressure that you put on yourself because of your own expectations and um, and, and and kind of standards. But um, no, like, I expect to win. I'm confident. To win. I've trained hard. I put a lot into it. I believe in myself. So you know, there's the, there's nothing worse than the feeling of uh, the disappointment when you lose. So no, no one wants to feel that, and I, I certainly don't. And uh, then again, there's nothing as good as when you win. So the, 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 the stakes are fairly high from that regard. And uh, Oh, I'm, 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 the pressure, you know, I think there's pressure in every fight because even when you're, you're first-term pro and, and, and when you're having the four-rounders and six-rounders, there's a lot of pressure in them fights because if you lose them, then, you know, not, all this doesn't happen. So, uh, no, it's, it's, it's a big fight. It's a world title fight. But uh, in another way, you just have to approach it just like any other fight as well. It is just another fight. And, uh, you know, I'm um, I'm ready. I've trained hard. I'm fit. I'm in good shape. I've sparred well. So, it's all that the, all that's left to do now is just stay focused, stay relaxed, and uh, turn up on the night and perform. You certainly don't dodge the big fights, anyway, Matthew. This is a, another ridiculously tough opponent, Golovkin, twenty-six and zero, and he knocks out a lot of opponents. Yeah, well, I always done it the hard way, but uh, that's the best way as well. It'll be the most uh, satisfying once it comes comes off. Um, yeah, tough fight, big puncher, great amateur pedigree, um, strong. Good, you know, he does not a lot of weaknesses and. Uh, you know what can you say? He, he looks a very complete fighter, but every fighter does have weaknesses. And if, if you want to pick one, maybe he, has, he hasn't fought anybody like me. He's probably, you know, even though he's world champion, he's, he's relatively inexperienced as world champions go. And uh, 
you know, I, th- I think my experience uh, will, will, will be a big factor on the night of the fight. Yeah, he was described in the Sunday Times as a man whose freakish strength and explosive speed is accompanied by a lustful desire to bring opponents to bad places. It sounds like you're going in against uh, Eva Drago here from Rocky IV or something. That's it. Well, we all know how Rocky Four ended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too right. That's good enough. But is it going to be a tear up, or have you got a slightly more sophisticated game plan in your in your mind? Well, I think you know he, he's, he's aggressive. He's strong. You know, I'm aggressive and strong, and we both punch. So I think it will be it will be action packed at some stage. But I think yeah, it's you know there'll be a time to be smart and not just be reckless either, because you know he, he can punch, and you know he'll be probably thinking the same about me. So. Uh, you know, we, we can both we can both punch, both strong, but we're, but we're both smart fighters too. So I think it, it'll be uh, there'll probably be a bit of everything happening, to be honest. Yeah, well, we're cheering on Rocky here anyway. A round of applause, please, for Matthew Macklin going in for the world title. Matthew, thanks for talking to us. Best of luck on Saturday night. Cheers, oh, thanks a lot. Brilliant stuff. Hopefully, we will have an Irish world champion to talk about on next week's second captains at the Irish Times. The odds aren't great though. And Matthew is talking big there as he has to do, Murph. But well, I've been looking at them and. His opponent's about nine to one on. Yeah, well, he's he's up against it, but then again, you know, you you can just go on the bookmakers, or you can enlist some of the most cutting edge technology you've ever seen in your entire life. As a complete nerd has already done on YouTube, this man has created a fight simulation of Matthew Macklin against Golovkin, all twenty two minutes of it, and this man has predicted he has predicted a Matthew Macklin. Knockout. So we can call it now. I mean, get, on, get Matthew back on the phone. We're going to do this. I mean, it's a week of celebration. We'll stick this up on facebook.com forward slash second captains and also tw- uh, on Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. We're uh, at second captains there. And it is worth watching for about two seconds. I, just, I will say Matthew Macklin's left hook is working wonderfully well in this simulation. So if you can yeah, bring that I mean, into I, real life. I think, we'll I think Matt really needs to watch this. You know, I think there's a lot he can pick up from this fight simulation. We're wrapping things up now, but just, Murphy, you might need to clarify something. There was a wolf owl, or a, no, human, a human wolf owl at the counts. start of Pierce Brosnan's Emigrant Shells. Yeah, that so does count as the wolf owl? That counts, and we will put up the winning time uh, on Twitter uh, later on today. All right, that's it. Lads, thanks very much, Murph. Ken? Thank you, Thank Owen. You, thanks, Ken. We'll play out today's show with a joint tribute to Matt Macklin and to Rocky Four. And we'll throw in that nerd you were talking about as well, Murph. This is for you. Bring you guys another fight simulation. As you guys can see, this time it's between Gennady Golovkin against uh, Matthew Macklin. And uh, I'll talk to you guys when the fight's over. But I also recognize that he's in good shape. That's one of the reasons he got off. Big shot there. As you guys can see, uh, Gennady Golovkin lost. I disagree with this. I think Gennady Golovkin will win. But uh, who knows? Like I said, anything can happen. Anything can happen in boxing. Thanks for watching. Like always, have a great day. Bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 